Several guests in this Emerging Adult with Mental Illness series discussed conflicting incentives. What does that even mean? Do incentives mean motivation? Why we do what we do? Are we talking about incentives for patients and caregivers, insurance companies, consultants, vendors, policymakers, clinicians, drug companies, pharmacy benefit companies, employers, or communities? In the last episode with Dr. Amanda Chu, we examined dynamic tensions. Incentives certainly cause tensions. Healthcare is a big business with massive amounts of money involved in extremely fragmented systems within systems and much power at stake. No wonder we think of conflicting incentives. The first health economist I knew personally was Jane Sarasan Khan of Health Populi fame. Full disclosure, Jane introduced me to blogging and suggested my name and brand, Health Hats, more than 10 years ago. Our guest today is Dr. Yoon Wang, who prefers Sherry. Dr. Wang is Assistant Professor in Health Economics and Outcomes Research at Chapman University School of Pharmacy. Before joining Chapman, she worked in global health, epidemiology, social science, clinical pharmacy, health economics, and health services research in Asia, Australia, and America. She is also alumni affiliate at the Center for the Study of Race, Ethnicity, and Equity, Washington University in St. Louis. Her research interests lie in pharmacoepidemiology and health, health service research for substance use and, and, and chronic a disease cisgender perfect for who knows a little bit about a lot of health and a lot about very little. You will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities and the awesome surface of healthcare. Let's make some sense of all of this. Like what you're reading, hearing, or watching? Go to my webpage, health-hats.com slash support to choose a method of support that suits you. Thank you. Sherry, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited about this. We met a month or two ago, and I had been thinking about the health economics angle on emerging adults with mental illness. And I realized I couldn't explain it to people. So I really appreciate that you're joining us. Tell us like really briefly about yourself. Thank you. I'm an assistant professor at the School of Pharmacy in China University. I'm doing substance use research here. So when we're talking about mental health, I found that I'm really attracted to mental health topic because mental health most is not a single topic. Normally, it combined with addiction, uh, substance use. So when I dive deeper into the people who abuse opioids and fentanyl, fentanyl right now is number one illegal drug in the United States. Um, or even in the black market, it's the number one drug. Like people die from it. People overdose and die from that. So I feel very sad for the truth. Like we could not offer 
sufficient treatment to those patients who overdose. So this how I discover the health disparity in their access to like medication for opioid use disorder. So basically also MOUD is not the single solution, but this is the most seems like it's the most feasible solution at this moment for the people who overdose. I'm so, sorry, I missed the word. MOUD, medication for opioid use disorder. That is how I discover my interest in addressing the health disparity issues in people's access to health care service especially the people who have mental illness, who suffer from the addiction, who have also have the substance abuse. Can you tell us what is health economics? That's your field, right? What does that mean to the lay person? What does sure. that mean and why should they care about it? I think in very simple words, the health economics tell you like how you spend your money. Like how it describes how the individuals, including like the patient, the families and the neighbors, the communities make decisions regarding their health care in the context of limited resources. So economics, we know, like talking about, okay, you have this much. How do you make smart decisions about spending this much and maximize revenue? So in a similar way, the health economics talks about the health. So it focuses on understanding how individuals allocate their financial resources, time and efforts to obtain the best possible health outcomes. So, so you're talking about what people, individuals and families spend out of their pocket. So out of pocket, which might be different than insurance, what insurance companies pay, or what the social services pay. So that's one kind of economics. And then the economics of my personal budget. I got where your question come from. I think I need to emphasize one way uh, undertake like a health economic analysis, we always start from the perspective. So you can start from the payer's perspective. Or, or like just you said, when we're talking about out-of-pocket money, we are considering a patient's like perspective regarding the copay part. Sometimes I feel our healthcare system is fascinating because we are multiple payer system. So if you start from different peers' perspective, the story could be totally different. Right now, I notice different from physical illness, there is a unique characteristic of mental health disease. For other types of physical health disease, the private insurer is a big stakeholder. But for the mental health disease, the payment, like the government, the Medicare and Medicaid, pays more for mental health and substance abuse care, and the private insurance pays for less. So yeah, I think the health economics can be studying how the stakeholders, it can be Medicare, Medicaid, or the patients, or even private insurance companies allocate the resources. And this understanding the resource is very limited. Like yeah. you can spend this much money on this thing. 
and no more budget can be allocated to this. So if we're thinking about health economics from a patient and family's point of view, we're not just talking about co-pays, but we're talking about transportation. We might be talking about wages that you aren't earning because you're suffering. Mm -hmm. Is that all included too? Yeah, of course. I think you touch on the terminology about the cost. Okay. So when we conduct a health economics analysis, we consider direct cost and the indirect cost. So in simple words, direct cost is the health-related cost. The money you spend in the in hospitalization for the hospital stay, the therapeutics, the drugs, the medications. Mm-hmm. A typical example in my research is MOUD, medication for opioid use disorder. And the indirect cost cost is talking about the health-related productivity loss at work and at unpaid labor. Due to the characteristics of the patients, sometimes mental health illness or similar like disorder could put them in an desirable position for the insurer, for the employer, or even for their neighborhoods. If this happens, that could introduce some health-related productivity loss. So I can give you a very specific example. Sometimes we feel like the the major disease burden from mental health disease is the full persons of severely ill patients, right? So one example is schizophrenia. The direct cost of treating schizophrenia includes the cost of hospitalization, short-term, long-term, outpatient follow-up and daycare and pharmaceutical intervention, laboratory testing, social security payment. You know, the indirect cost in this case will be the loss of productivity. The age of onset schizophrenia could be very early. It could start from people's teenager or even early 20s. So it could somehow like potentially preclude patients from even getting to work. So later on, most of the schizophrenia patients receive benefits from incapacity of work due to disability. Nowadays, I look into the literature, most of schizophrenia patients receive a disability certificate. So eventually they don't have to work. So in academia, many researchers believe the loss of the productivity for this type of severely ill patients account for the majority of indirect cost. Yeah, so if you look at the overall picture, the excessive economic burden of schizophrenia in the States was around 350 million and about 250 million coming from the indirect cost. So this is very big. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things you said at the beginning was that health economics is part of how people make decisions about their care. Mm -hmm. So it would seem that if somebody has a chronic illness, like you're saying, schizophrenia, Mm-hmm. and there's like an acute phase, which is they're in the hospital. Yeah. Then there's a, 
like early chronic phase, right? Where they're learning to live with it. And Mm -hmm. then there's the recovery phase, which is they're mostly living with it, meaning they've come to some kind of equilibrium and they've found a place that they can function. Mm -hmm. So are the health economic considerations different for those different like stages? I think you ask a very good question. Okay. Okay. So I want to bring in some alarming alarming issues I just discovered. Okay. So first of all, I found that we always talking about how to smartly utilize the system or how we improve our healthcare system to make sure everyone get like equal chance to be treated. But the over-treatment and the treatment could coexist within the same healthcare system and even within the same system, same payment system. When we're talking about under-treatment, over-treatment, the under-treatment part is for the person who has been diagnosed with mental illness at some point during one year. So at the population level, about 30% of our population who will be diagnosed with mental illness, but only 17% of them will get treatment. In one any- seven or seven zero? Oh. Seventeen. 17. Seven. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. That's pathetic. Only 17% of them get treatment. So in any healthcare sector, and the other 7% will get their own treatment from some, from like self-help group or self, like a peer support group, such as maybe you have heard it, it's Alcoholic Anonymous, such type of support group. So the number is very small. Even we're talking about schizophrenia, about 57% of schizophrenia patients actually get treatment. But on the other part, some people have been over-treated in our healthcare system. So, you know, those individuals with no diagnosed mental health conditions, they also getting treatment for like mental health and addiction or substance use care. So they are making around the set, like eight visits per year, as much as the people who actually have been diagnosed. So the people who have been diagnosed with mental health, like issue or condition, they made nine visits per year. So this is a very awkward situation. And treatment, over treatment could coexist in the system. The other part is, it looks like our, as I mentioned earlier, our government actually pays a lot compared to the private insurer, insurance sector. Medicaid pays somehow larger than in the mental health and substance use setting. But the other part of reality is it provides some such mental health and substance use insurance coverage. They provide some coverage for lower range of spending but leaves the household or the family and even the patients unprotected against the more expensive treatment. I know you will ask me to talk on this. I found some literature 
And I am really surprised to find the Medicare Part A, they have covers in patient care for the patients who need mental health treatment in either like a general hospital or psychiatric hospital, only for 190 days of hospital service in your lifetime. 90 right? days in your lifetime. Yeah, 190 days. Oh. It's no... It's not beyond 200 days or even one year in your lifetime. It's not like one year. So if like you are getting enrolled in Medicare, if you get enrolled in Medicare, that means the patients need to pay like 400 copay per day, starting from the 60 days. And if you go beyond this 190 days, probably you will pay 800 per day for less lifetime reserve days in the year. So this is how much the patient actually pay. So back to the question, yes, there are different stage, acute stage, chronic stage. It brings to my attention, like our patients are not sufficiently covered even during the acute care stage. Okay, so let's go back to how the parents of a 17-year-old with major depression or schizophrenia, like, how are they thinking about, like, how might they benefit in their decision-making by understanding health economics? like? Does it, is it like too abstract or do you think that it could be presented in a way that the public could understand it and make choices, do this versus do that? I feel... This question is a little bit challenging. I feel oh, like <laughs> I would be shocked if it was easy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I feel as the as typical parents of the children who suffer from like severe mental health illness or conditions, um, basically they could feel lost when they hear me like bringing up something right. like health economics. It right. sounds so dry they don't understand why it would bring me benefits to the children or their own patient. So the only thing I can consider, there are having some like preventive care for mental uh. health illness. Like the right now, right now you are talking about the teenager, this type of age, like pediatric patients, young adolescents. I would like to see there have been some programs that has shown the effectiveness and the cost effectiveness. So early on, I noticed there, like the other countries may have done a better job compared to us. I'm sorry to say that, but I noticed some literature from England and Finland. Like Finland, they have done anti-bullying program at the school setting. So they found- Say that again. What kind of program? It's a school-based 
anti-bullying program developed in order to focus on enhancing empathy, self-efficacy, oh, okay. and anti-bullying attitude. Oh, anti-bullying. Oh, yeah. totally. Oh, totally. I Oh, I see what you mean. So do you think then that at that level, the health economics is more for the policymakers than the patients and families that are going in the throes of trying to manage their lives? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the I think the such type of evaluation, even is designed to influence the policy house policy making, decision making. But even like we recognize the the usefulness of this such type of house economics evaluation right. in addressing the needs to find out like which intervention is more cost effective, but it has been downplayed in Amer- American compared yeah. to other countries. Okay. So it's not that influential in many settings. But it could be like influential in some scenarios such like public health and the health promotion activities because our CDC is promoting such type of health economic evaluation in this type of scenarios. But in broader scenarios, I regret to tell our audience like we yeah. see very like the very uh, restricted or limited impact patient decision making and even if we are thinking about like we publish this type of house economic analysis and try to impact medicare medicaid and there has been some uh, methodological limitation in our in our economic analysis as i said earlier the indirect we need to account for the indirect cost. Sometimes the indirect cost could be lifetime. Yeah, people could challenge you like, okay, your model or your house economics model, the timeline is really short and you cannot capture all the cost. Right. So if you cannot achieve a full evaluation, a holistic evaluation of a lifetime impact or lifetime analysis, it got some substantial limitation in the clinical significance. Yeah. Or even I noticed in recent years, like CMS has made like some efforts, try to expanding the access of the homeless people to the um, health care service for mental health disease or mental health illness. They try to build up more places or they try to get people enrolled in there. In California, the Medicaid system is medical. Right. So they try to get people enrolled in this type of system. But there are some other issues beyond the health economics or health economist like consideration, such as those homeless people, they don't have some like the documentations in our system. Some of them don't have ID. If we want to get them enrolled in California's Medicaid system, they don't have the phone call. They don't have the smartphone to make a phone call to get enrolled. So there are some logistics like that 
that are actual barriers compared right. to the economic barriers. Now a word about our sponsor, A Bridge. Record your healthcare conversations with doctors and other clinicians with A Bridge. Push the big pink button and record. Read the transcripts or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com, A-B-R-I-D-G-E dot com, or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Let me know how it went. I need help. I've expanded my podcast this year to include video, and costs have surged, while each episode takes 30 to 40 hours to produce. With growing content and shrinking bandwidth, I need support to keep creating without impacting our retirement funds. As I look towards the next 5 to 10 years, I'm building a production team of emerging adults to carry this project forward. This succession planning requires resources. But here's the deal. You can help. Visit health-hats.com slash support for ways to contribute. Best option? Patreon offers a monthly subscription with bonus content, Zoom meetings with me and fellow contributors, personal Barry Sachs MP3s, Woohoo! Coaching sessions and more. Occasional donations are welcome, and you can still subscribe for free to enjoy bonus episodes. You can also recommend us through email, social media, or postcards. Postage on us. Visit health-hats.com/support. Your support is deeply appreciated. Thank you. So now I've got two questions. So the first one is, I think that the audience for this podcast is more people who help people. Yes. So not so much people who are in the acute phase of chronic illness, but rather those people who are like yourself, doing research about it or navigators or policy makers or advocates. Yeah. And so it seems like the the economics, like the health economics, if they could understand, if that group could make use of health economics as they're working with the people that they're helping. Yeah. That's a target for mm-hmm. more, a better understanding. Yes. Rather I, than people in the throes of it. Absolutely. I agree okay. with you. I think even like this advocate investment in mental health prevention something like prevention interventions and the uh, 
scientifically proven significance has been lacking in most of the high-income countries, including us. So I think advocates could think about this, prevent the mental health before it's on site from, from a big picture, instead just focusing on cure people. There are lots we can do. Right. The economic evaluation tools can help inform the investment decision-making for okay. this type of prevention interventions. The other part, I feel like the health economics address the challenge of the limited health care resources and the unlimited competing uses. So it's a way to identify the trade-off. So the advocates can utilize, including like people like us who care about the patients. We can use this type of tool to analyze the cost and the consequence of our native interventions and guiding the choice regarding what health service should be put as the treatment on your priority list. So it seems getting involved with a school board and influencing the culture at schools for care of teens that are anxious and depressed is health health economics then informs that kind of investment. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's basically health economic analysis is a tool for decision-making to get decision-making. So the active involvement, as you said, in all types of settings could contribute to the effectiveness of adopting this type of models. As I, I mentioned earlier, like California, we have a severe homeless people like problem, right? We have the largest, almost one of the country's largest population who live, who not, who are not living in a shelter system. Uh, I read some news from LA Times saying about 50% of the homeless people have mental illness conditions. So homeless people, especially when, you know, they have co-occurring drug issues, they face barriers to access treatment in the community. Sometimes we can, it's not just like the prevention program in the schools, it could also be targeting at this type of subgroups who suffer the most from the concurrent situation. So the barrier could like include long waiting list for treatment programs, that accept medical. So if you are making, if you try to convince the medical make changes to expand the access to use behavioral health service for people experiencing the homelessness, it could also help improve the situation. So the other examples I can think of is the person in prison and or jail. See also oh, yeah, because if there's not access to treatment and people are homeless, yeah, then they're more likely to be incarcerated because the, the system that's more appropriate for their care isn't available. So they get in trouble and they're in, in jail. Absolutely. 
Okay. I noticed in the literature, the, the scientific evidence saying it may not be like universal. Some scientific literature saying around 40 to 50 people will die from their mental health conditions in the jail. So it's a big number, 40%. Like people cannot, like because people may suicide, self-harm, all type of situations. If we adopt a health economic perspective, we can think about how we allocate the clinicians, like our clinics, psychiatric clinics. How can we send the psychologist to the something like in prison or jail setting to help the patients survive and extend their like the life expectancy or even improve their quality of life? So what do you see happening if you look in your crystal ball? What do you see happening in the future with how we're using health economics to help make decisions? If I look at the future, I would say the existing health economics models often Rely, rely on some clinical trial-based economic evaluation studies. So actually, we narrow down to just a trial. So we can may not in real life, there are multiple types of interventions that could help the people, you know, especially the vulnerable people like homeless people in jail, the teenagers, our younger generation. So I would like to see some more studies look at the long-term cost and the consequence. Because we, when we look at short-term cost, it's only like how much you paid for the in-hospitalization to, to offer better care to schizophrenia patients. You cannot see how much benefits have been generated from it because you are looking at three years Probably the scenario you found is like you just spend the money from our healthcare system and there is no benefits generated. But if you look at a longer term perspective, that could reflect the real life practice. So well, like a public health perspective rather than yeah. a, med- a medical care perspective. Okay, so lastly. If you were going, if thinking about our conversation over the last half hour, like what do you think are two or three sound bites that you would want listeners to come away with? Uh, I want to remind our listeners or deliver the message to our listeners the society cost of mental and addictive disorders concentrated in the 4% of our population that experience the severe forms of disorders. This subgroup people display a couple of characteristics, make them undesirable for the insurer, for the employer, and even for their neighborhoods. So when we are trying to think about the health economics, like perspective, how to help them, I think the we cannot just leave the people alone by themselves. It's like sometimes our the payment system will not offer sufficient like sponsorship to this this subgroup of patients. So our future attention should be focused on ensure they got 
like I mentioned early on, the over-treatment, under-treatment, they are having under-treatment in our system, unfortunately. So I think our future could be like offer more comprehensive treatment and give them more sponsorship in their difficulty journey. So instead of just putting the burden on their families or their neighborhoods. Dr. Wang will be talking about buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is an opioid medication, a narcotic. Suboxone contains a combination of buprenorphine and naloxone. Naloxone blocks the effects of opioid medications, including pain relief or feelings of well-being that can lead to opioid abuse. Suboxone is used to treat narcotic opioid addiction. Until recently, a physician needed a certificate called an X waiver to prescribe buprenorphine. They were also limited in the number of persons they could prescribe buprenorphine to. Click the links or check the show notes for more information. And the other points I would like to see is something about the stigma. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I did buprenorphine treatment, this type of research. I found like even we have available choices, such as medication for opioid use disorder, there has been like a long time barriers of people's stigma surrounding this. So that creates a scenarios like people will, the patient who suffer from opioid use disorder will not reach out to our healthcare system for treatment or for help. And even the prescribers, before the end of last year, we have the X waiver. That means only physicians who get X waiver can prescribe buprenorphine. But after, since the beginning of this year, like we have taken down the X waivers, which is a good news. So more prescribers can prescribe buprenorphine. Okay. Buprenorphine is a typical drug for opioid right. So you need to be certified to be able to prescribe buprenorphine until recently. Yeah. In the past, or at least in my findings, I found the majority of the X waiver clinicians they are not actively prescribing in real-world right. setting. That means even you got that type of license or X waiver, you don't prescribe. So there has been some qualitative research saying, oh, they are so afraid of the addicted patients coming to their clinics, such type of, oh, there has been lots of logistics they have to go through to prescribe or they don't have the time. But I would say, from a researcher's perspective, I would call for uh, destigmatization, like for our patients who suffer from mental health illness. So that could ensure that, like those subgroup people, can access our healthcare system without any psychological burden. We already got some financial burden. We don't want them to come to our system feel hopeless or feeling being judged. I think that could be the other concern of my time. You know what we didn't talk about and what actually I think attracted me to you when we met in that restaurant 
is or whatever it was we met at that conference, right? Um, yeah. Was you were talking about graphics that yeah. you developed to try to explain some of these health economic issues. Absolutely. I would love to see some of those. Of course, we are going to publish some of this. And yeah, I can yeah pass you some stories about okay. like what we found. Interestingly, I found like the home value in California, home value is a big predictor for social economic status instead of the other things, like instead of the income levels and some like racial decomposition, something like that. We we found like in the high home value communities, people got more ex weaver physicians. The rich communities with higher home value, they get better treatment, which is very unfortunate. No. And what, are they also at risk for over-treatment? I think so. Oh, I would say that creates a disparity situation for the like neighborhood with more like they even they have a higher risk of opioid use disorder, higher risk of opioid overdose deaths, but they don't have the available physician to give them medication. If people have to drive 10 miles or even one hour and this traffic in California to get the medication for their opioid use disorder, this is absolute a barrier to them to the people seeking Oh, totally. Transportation is monster. Yeah, I know. So like we did some mapping project to map. Okay, you live in this zip code. What happened to you? Sometimes we find very, like the ugly side of our society. Some areas we know those people like living in their neighborhoods, like the some areas in California, they are overcrowded by homeless people. In those areas, you can hardly find any prescribing physicians. As I mentioned in our early conversation, like these physicians are not willing to prescribe because they don't want to open the door and find one house, a full house of addicted patients in their clinic, which is very unfortunate to the patients as well. So this is something I want to like display to my audience and the to get some social impact, helping people realizing the geospatial availability is one aspect of maybe I would say health disparity. And if like we observe this type of health disparity, all the stakeholders should considering how to allocate the like available healthcare resources, including like a Medicaid, they could think about some opening some clinics or collaborate. Right now, everyone in the Medicaid system, enrolled in the Medicaid system of California, they have been managed by managed care. So managed care, basically, they have a network of physicians. If like you, you didn't capture enough or sufficient um, network providers in this neighborhood, maybe you should consider actively enrolling some people from this neighborhood. So I think that could be our future direction. I'm more than happy to share some fundings with you and keep you 
posted on our progress. That would be great. It's been lovely. I really appreciate your time. And I'm just glad we met. And yeah. uh, who knew? <laughs> yeah, I really love your passion in doing this. Thank you. I saw your the fundraising emails. I appreciate that. I yes, think and I-, I appreciate that you contributed. We will keep in touch. Thank you, Danny. Thank you. Have a good okay. one. Bye. Bye. Health economics examines how you spend your money for best health. And when we spend that money, what value comes our way? Can we make better decisions, get better care? If we don't spend money or don't have enough money, what happens to decisions and outcomes? Then who's you? We, us, the public, insurance companies, employers, legislators, policymakers, benefit managers, community vendors, consultants, who? From what perspective? Is it just buying and selling treatment and services? How do you put a price on quality of life, access, function, earning power? Is it value for an individual, a community, a nation? Over what period? The term of the study grant or people's lifetimes? These questions reflect murkiness of health economics. I strive to participate professionally in the health economics and value conundrum from several perspectives. As PCORI board members, we consider, as appropriate, the full range of clinical and patient-centered outcomes data relevant to patients and stakeholders. In addition to health outcomes and clinical effectiveness, relevant outcomes may include the potential burdens and economic impacts of the utilization of medical treatments, items, and services. As a patient caregiver member of the Innovation and Value Institute, IVI, I've learned of six main areas of economic impacts, direct medical costs, non-clinical health care costs, caregiver and family impacts, social impacts, ability to work, and education and job impacts. In my seat on the National Quality Forum's Standing Committee on Cost and Effectiveness, I learned about policymaking. As NQF says, current levels of healthcare spending and growth in the United States have the potential to increase federal deficits and crowd out spending for other important national priorities. Economic realities like these require performance measures that can accurately capture spending, especially when spending arises from inefficient or poor quality care. Together, cost and quality measures can help to assess the efficiency and value of care delivered. Just as we're finding with emerging adults with mental illness, health economics is complicated. I recommend watching Joe Flowers' video about health economics. He took a different approach. Link in the show notes. My ask, does health economics matter to you? I host, write, record, edit, engineer, and produce Health Hats, the podcast, with 
production assistance from Kayla Nelson from website and social media consultation and managing dissemination, plus Leon Van Leeuwen for transcript editing. Joey Van Leeuwen supplies musical support, especially for the podcast intro and outro. I play Barry Sachs on some episodes alone or with the Lechuga Fresca Latin Band. I'm grateful to you who have the most critical roles as listeners, readers, and watchers. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, health-hats.com, and my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at D-V-A-N-L-E-E-U. Link in the show notes. If you like it, share it. See you around the block. Thank you.